This is Alan Seaborn from Winning at Home. Welcome to In Progress, a podcast about faith, life, and how we grow. And in this episode, I want to talk about something that we've briefly touched on a little bit in the past, and that is the way that people in the Old Testament had the opportunity to meet with God. In an episode where we talked about how David was able to say that Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy were words of life that these words and passages were sweeter than honey, then we looked at the reason he can say that and the reason that he viewed those books differently than a lot of us do as kind of dry and stale and, okay, I'm just powering through reading this stuff. We looked at how um, this was how God revealed himself to his people. And as I was thinking about that, I was reading through uh, the book of 1 Kings, and in the beginning of the book of 1 Kings, we find out how Solomon came to power after David and how God had told King David that even though he was a man who was searching and seeking after God, he was not going to be the one to build the temple, the place of worship in Israel, for people to go and connect with God because David was a man of war. He had shed blood and God wanted instead his son, Solomon, who would be a man of peace and a man of wisdom and of depth and insight. He wanted him to be the one to build the temple. And so the early chapters of 1 Kings talk about what it looked like for Solomon as he came into power and as he consolidated power and a lot of the practical things that go along with being a king in the ancient world. But then after that, Solomon starts construction on the temple. And the way that he does this, he's, he's trying to, again, this is key, he's trying to create a place where people can connect with God, a place where they can know that they've done what they need to do in order to be in relationship with him, in order to be right with him. And so Solomon starts construction. And if you read through uh, 1 Kings 5 and the chapters that follow, you see that he went to incredible, painstaking, over-the-top detail, effort, time, energy, expense because he was making a place for people to meet with God. He was making a place where God would dwell. And so what he did is he reached out to some of the nearby nations, the people who were experts in different parts of construction, because Israel was primarily an agricultural society they really needed to reach out to some other people who were experts when it came to uh, working with timber and lumber, when it came to working with stone. And the way they set this up is that the people of Israel, Solomon had it so that there were uh, some different shifts of people who would go, and they would work with these foreign nations 
for a month at a time, and then they would come back home for two months at a time. So they're learning these different trades, working with wood and working with stone and this other material that they're not really experts in or used to. But then they come back and spend two months at home. So they're also able to maintain the parts of their agricultural society so that you're not really drawing from one family and just saying, hey, sorry, your husband or dad or whatever it is, is going to be gone until this thing gets finished. Sorry. Hope you can make it work in the meantime. And he set this up so that they reached out to um, get some cedars of Lebanon. And if you've been around church and if you've read through scripture, you've probably seen or heard reference to these trees before. Because for the ancient world, the cedars of Lebanon, that was the exact building material that you wanted. These were well-known, well-established. Cedar was a great wood to work with because it had a really good, fresh, clean smell. We still know and use that to this day. But it's also a wood that is that smell and that freshness to it, it attracts people, but it repels bugs. And so bugs didn't want to burrow into it. So you didn't have to worry so much about your construction project uh, getting eaten out from under you, essentially, and rotting because bugs got all into it. And so Solomon made a trade with the king who was going to work with him to get these cedars of Lebanon over to the site where they needed to construct the temple. And so Solomon, in exchange for sending this king an absolute huge amount of food every year that would provide this king and his palace and his estate the way to live in luxury, some of the goods that Israel had that they wouldn't easily be able to get. He traded uh, for a huge amount of these cedars of Lebanon and the tradespeople who were skilled in working with it. So Solomon worked that out. And then he worked out a deal with some people who would be working in the quarry as stonemasons. And there was a deal here you find as you read through 1 Kings that the people who were working on these stones, they didn't actually do the chipping away and the sawing down and the shaping of these stones on site where the temple was going to be located. Because Solomon wanted this place to not be viewed primarily as a construction site, as a, the place where you go and you chip down these huge stones and you form it exactly the way that you need it to be. He wanted this to be viewed as a holy place the place where Israel could connect with God. And so they're working on these stones at a separate location and then bringing them in and placing them. That's all they're doing on site at the construction site of the temple. They're just placing these big stones. Now I want you to think about that for a minute and the amount of work 
And like I mentioned before, the painstaking detail that went into creating an exactly square or exactly um, lining up to the previous stone that you've laid on a separate location and then you're bringing it to the site of the temple where you're piecing this together and building a place for people to meet with and connect with and be in right relationship with God. That's a lot of work. And after they got these stones all placed, they took these cedars of Lebanon that they had uh, made this deal for and that they've been working on cutting up and drying out and all the things that go into using lumber in, in a construction project. And they line the inside of the temple so the outside, the walls are the stone that they've cut off site and that they've placed. And then inside, they lined all of that stone with this cedar wood from Lebanon. So the floor, the walls, the ceiling, they lined it all. And then over top of all of that wood, they laid gold. So they figure, I'm trying to picture how you would even do that on a ceiling. I have no idea. But they went through and they made sure that everything, not gold-plated, because we think of that today and we think, oh yeah, that's kind of that cheap stuff where there's just a veneer, a shine of gold on the outside of something that's not gold. They put gold over everything here. The reason for this was kind of multiple things they were thinking. One, they wanted this to be something that they put an extreme amount of value into. And what was the most valuable thing that they could picture? It was gold. And so they poured gold, gold, gold into this temple because they wanted it to be a place where they had made a big sacrifice, where they had given an over-the-top amount when it came to the construction of the temple. But there was also another reason for gold being on every surface in the temple. Now, even like the decorations that were added in, there were uh, carvings of angels that were in different parts of the temple. Those were overlaid with gold. Everything was overlaid with gold. And the second reason for this is because when the priests, and that was the only group of people that were able to enter the temple, when they entered the temple in order to make sacrifices, there would be incense that would be burning in the temple. And so they're stepping from outside right into this place that is covered entirely in gold and that has incense burning inside. So they're just from being inside the temple there's already this feeling that you're in a completely otherworldly sort of place. Everything looks completely different than anything you'll see anywhere else because everything's covered in gold. Everything smells completely different because 
there's this beautiful incense burning. And entering into the temple was designed to sensorily remind you that the place you are right now is not just a regular place. This is a place where you're coming to meet with God. And there were very specific regulations about how you entered into the temple. There were very specific regulations about who could enter the temple. And there were gates outside of the temple. And there was kind of an outer gate where if you were not a Jewish person, you couldn't enter in past that outer gate. You could be close-ish to the temple and you could, as a non-Jewish person, get a certain proximity within this spot where people could meet with God, but you couldn't come any closer. And then the Jewish people could go and they would have to wait outside of the inner gate. They would be able to offer sacrifices and they would be able to go and praise and worship God that way. But the only people who could enter actually into the temple were the priests. And like I mentioned before, there were very specific ways that you could do that. This wasn't something that you entered into nonchalantly. This wasn't something that you entered into whenever you felt like it. And beforehand, there were ritual ceremonies of cleansing. There was a a huge, they called it, um, sometimes it's described in terms of how much water was in this thing, a unit of measurement of a bath, and it had multiple, multiple baths worth of water in this big bowl where the priests would wash off, where they would immerse themselves, and they would, in, in that way, not only symbolically cleaning themselves, but also actually physically washing themselves with this water and changing clothes after washing so that they could be prepared to go and enter God's presence. And the inside of the temple was set up the first two-thirds of the temple. It was built in, if you can picture, it was a rectangular shape. And you didn't enter on the longer two sides of the rectangle. You would enter on the shorter side of the rectangle. And so you're walking into, it's not as narrow as a hallway, but if you picture a hallway, that will give you an idea of sort of the layout of the temple. And the first two-thirds of the length of the temple, this was where... uh, priests could enter as they were worshiping and they were celebrating God. And this was called the holy place. And then the back third of the temple was called the most holy place or the holy of holies. And it was separated from the rest of the temple by uh, a fabric cloth veil And only the high priest was able to enter the Holy of Holies where there were very specific 
memories of Israel's history. There was the Ark of the Covenant, which was the spot where God dwelt with his people. And so they housed the Ark inside this temple to let people know this is where God is. This is where God has made his presence known to people. And one day a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, and would offer sacrifices and would make the people right with God on this one day a year. So I say that to say that in Israel, in Old Testament times, this is what it took to be close to God. This is what it meant to meet with him, to be in relationship with him. It took all this over-the-top construction. It took all this ceremonial, doing things exactly by the book, offering at the exact right time, entering into the Holy of Holies one day a year, and offering the exact prescribed sacrifice. And then, when Jesus died on the cross, there was um, darkness and an earthquake or thunder. And also, that veil in the temple was torn. Because when Jesus died, what happened is, the way to get to God was opened up. And there was no longer this one place that people had to go. This one extravagant building that, would, that was intentionally put together to dazzle the senses and to make you realize, I am not in the regular world anymore. I am in some sacred space right now. And when Jesus died, that veil was torn. And the way to God was opened up for anybody and everybody. And I love the symbolism of what's happening there. Because, you know, if we're honest, I think a lot of us, we probably think, man, is it really that easy to get to God that I can just talk to him, that I don't have to jump through a bunch of hoops because that's the way that getting to God always went for the majority of human history, right? You had to do the exact thing, the exact right way in the exact right place, and then you had a chance to draw near to him. But with the veil being torn, God is making it clear that he wants his people to be able to get to him. And in the book of James chapter 4, 
James communicates this idea in a way that I think lets all of us know that no matter where we're at, no matter what we've been going through, no matter what we feel in our past or in our present, disqualifies us from being able to come close to God, from being able to meet with him and be in relationship with him. James says this in James 4, starting in verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Right there, James says in two verses what we just spent, I don't know, 20 minutes, I don't know how far into this we are, talking about. The way that we can connect with God, the way that we can be in right relationship with him, is as simple as, like James says here, submitting to God, resisting the devil, drawing near to God, coming near to God, washing your hands, which you get that there he's pointing back to something that the priests did before they walked into the temple to purify. He's saying, Wash your hands and purify your hearts. It's not, an, it's not a physical act anymore, but it is a symbolic thing that we actually do when we meet with God. We purify ourselves. We do this sort of a consecration kind of a thing. We make an on-purpose decision to meet with him. And so what James talks about here, submitting to God, resisting the devil, drawing near to God, and purifying, consecrating ourselves is what it looks like now because of Jesus' sacrifice, because of that moment where the veil was torn and a whole bunch of the steps involved in meeting with God were removed. What we do now is we submit, we resist, we draw near to God, we come near to him. And when we do that, James says, when we draw near to God, He will draw near to us. That's amazing. Because in the ancient world, and for almost all of human history, what drawing near to God meant, whether you were worshiping the true God of Israel at the temple, or you were worshiping some other God, it meant your God is confined to a location where you go and you take all these steps and you can meet with this God and you can be in relationship with this God, but it's only if you draw near to this God. 
And I love that what James writes here is come near to God and he will come near to you. I keep going back and forth because the the version of this verse I memorized said, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. But either way, draw near or come near. If we're moving toward God, he's moving toward us. And that picture is a powerful image, isn't it? It's like what we talked about before with the story of the prodigal or the lost son, that when the son is returning home and starts getting closer to home, the father runs out to meet him. It's this image that when we make an effort to be in right relationship with God, when we move in his direction, He doesn't just stand there and wait for us to get the whole way there. If we're coming closer to him, he's coming closer to us. And that's a really simple but powerful reminder of what it means for all of us as we seek to figure out what it looks like for us individually, personally, to be in right relationship with God. We can look at what it has looked like forever all throughout human history and see the contrast and see the wonderful freedom and the way better situation that we're in now where if we come closer to God, he comes closer to us. It's amazing. And I want to encourage you today Maybe you've had a bunch of reasons that you've been not coming closer or drawing closer or moving in God's direction because you're going, well, I've actually got a couple things that are going on right now that I know aren't okay, and I kind of want to wrap those up. If I'm honest, I'm sort of enjoying where I'm at, um, and I don't know if I'm ready to submit to God and resist the devil. Um, Those are kind of my first two steps, and I, I don't know if I'm ready for that yet. Maybe some of us are thinking we're disqualified because of some of the things in our past, going, well, I've gotta, I've gotta figure out how to make up for all these mistakes that I've made in the past. I've gotta get it so that my good deeds I volunteer, I help people, I mentor people, and I've got to do all that for a while in order to earn moving closer to God. But that's not what James says. And that's not what the torn veil in the temple tells us. If we submit to God, resist the devil, and draw close, come close to God, He moves toward us. Don't live with excuses. Don't live with um, putting it off for a later date. Because the reason that we get a chance to be closer to God, and I've talked about this before and I'll keep talking about it, is not because he wants us to miss out on 
some of the great fun that we think we're having when we're living away from him. It's because he knows that being close to him, submitting, resisting, and drawing close to God is the best way to live. So let's go live that way.